0: Why does God threaten the righteous of Israel in Ezekiel 21? How was Ezekiel different from Jeremiah in his personality? And what hope do you have if your nation falls under God's judgment? You'll find out today on the Cross References Podcast. references podcast where you learn how every small piece of the Bible tells one big story and most importantly how they all connect to the cross and Christ whether you're a new Christian or a veteran Bible reader our goal is that God's word will make more sense to you after every episode this is Luke Taylor I'm a minister and I'm still here <laughs> despite what Greta Thunberg said she's a teenage climate change activist and this past week actually marked 5 years ever since that she predicted all mankind was going to be wiped out in the next five years. And guys, we made it. (laughs) We survived. I have survived the apocalypse. And if you're listening, you have too. But you might not survive the next one, so you better listen up today. We're gonna get back into the book of Ezekiel with chapter 21 today. And man, I have missed this little book. I shouldn't say it's a little book, it's a big book. I have missed this book of Ezekiel. I hit my podcast really hard back in the month of June. I did nine episodes all in one month, And I've only done 82 episodes of the podcast total. So that means more than 10% of all the podcast episodes I've done, they were done in the month of June. And I'm like, wow, that was a that was a big month for this podcast. So I'm gonna slow down a little bit. I'm gonna get back to a little bit more of a regular pace now that we're here in July. And I'm I'm also gonna start getting back into the book of Ezekiel. So welcome to episode 83 of the Cross References Podcast. And this is our 35th episode. Covering Ezekiel. And so we left off as we finished chapter 20, and that chapter ended with a threat of judgment from God. I mean, really, all 20 chapters have been threats of judgment from God. But at the end of chapter 20, the people are just not listening anymore. They were saying, oh, this is just going to be a spiritual judgment, it's a metaphorical judgment. We don't have to worry about God's wrath actually being poured out on Jerusalem. And so for chapter 21, God says, actually, you kind of do. He says, my wrath will be delivered upon Jerusalem through the sword of King Nebuchadnezzar. You will be destroyed by his hand. And it's just a few chapters away. The apocalypse is right around the corner. And when it comes, there's not going to be anything metaphorical about it. So (laughs) I guess if you're ready, I'm ready. Let's get back into this book. Grab a Bible, turn to Ezekiel 21, and let's see what God says next. Today, I'm going to do something a little bit out of the ordinary. I'm going to read from the Christian Standard Version of this passage. It used to be known as the HCSB. It was the H the, the Holman Christian Standard Bible. Somewhere along the way, they lost their H. I don't know why, but now if you look them up, it's just the Christian Standard. So I, I don't know. Anyway, I just happen to really like the way that this version rendered this chapter. So I'm not doing the ESV like I usually do. We're going to do the CSB this time. If that makes any difference to you at all, I just want to, I want to make that note. Chapter 21, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me again. Son of man, face Jerusalem and preach against the sanctuaries. Prophesy against the land of Israel and say to it, this is what the Lord says. I am against you. I will draw my sword from its sheath and cut off from you both the righteous and the wicked. Since I will cut off both the righteous and the wicked, my sword will therefore come out of its sheath against all humanity from the south to the north. So all humanity will know that I, the Lord, have taken my sword from its sheath. It shall not be sheathed again. Now, this passage really kind of bothers me because it says both the righteous and the wicked are going to be slaughtered whenever Babylon rolls through. And that just kind of messes with, with, I don't know, my theology a little bit, um, because I tend to teach that God is going to uh, deliver the righteous whenever he has to bring judgment on the wicked. And I take that from a lot of passages in the Bible, such as Second Peter chapter 2, if you look at that one. And so it kind of bothers me right here, I'll admit, that God is threatening to bring the sword against both the wicked and the righteous. And I thought that Ezekiel had already dealt with this issue back in chapter 9, when it was implied that there, that there weren't really any righteous left back there in Israel by this point. So who is it talking about here when it says when it refers to the righteous now? And also, let's not forget what we learned in Ezekiel 18. That was my favorite chapter of this book. It taught personal responsibility. It taught that God is going to judge each person for their own sins. So again, if that's the case, why are the righteous said to die by the sword right here? Well, here's some things to keep in mind as we interpret scripture. Uh, Let's start with Ezekiel 18. That chapter was about salvation. That wasn't about your physical life. Some people try to make Ezekiel 18 about your, your physical life, your physical body. And that honestly, that just doesn't jive with, um, with, with anything in the Bible. It doesn't jive with reality. Ezekiel 18 says that the righteous won't die. But if you think about it, everybody dies. So obviously, it's not talking about your physical life right there. It's talking about your spiritual life, your eternal life. If you're righteous, you're not going to suffer eternal death. So when it comes to salvation issues, the same is still true. Everybody is responsible for themselves. But then we come to Ezekiel 21. Is this chapter about salvation? Well, no, this is talking about your physical life. If you're going to be in Israel at the time that Babylon rolls through, you are most likely going to be killed by the Babylonians. That's true whether, whether you're righteous or not. If you're righteous, then you are not the one who invited God's judgment against you but because of the wickedness of the people around you you might have to suffer right along with them now i'm still personally i'm still not totally comfortable with that idea for for reasons both theological and also practical but you know i'm just being honest here i'm trying to kind of work my way through this and so i guess the, here's the question if this is a problem here's the question i would be asking the righteous people who are in Jerusalem at this point okay if you're so righteous if you're not one of the wicked why are you still there? Why haven't you gotten out of Dodge? Okay, this is, this, it's kind of like the question I would have asked if I had talked to Lot. If I had said, hey, why are you choosing to live in Sodom? I mean, this is the San Francisco of the Middle East. Why do you even want to live there? And scripture says, as Lot was living in Sodom, it says his righteous soul was vexed. So he had a righteous soul, he didn't like what he saw, and yet he didn't leave. My question to him would be, why? That's that's what I want to ask him. And and probably today he's asking himself that same question. So um, he might agree right along with me that there is just no sense in being there. And uh, as I said, it said he's a righteous man. So I'm assuming he's up in heaven. He's probably wondering the same thing. Why did I live so long in Sodom? And then that leads me to some questions I've been asking about my, you know, my own life lately. What, when is it a good time to flee a state? Now, the state that I live in, things haven't gotten too bad, but, I mean, th- there are some parts of the United States that I would just not want to live. As I'm recording this, last weekend, there were um, literally naked men r- riding around on bicycles in Seattle. They, they were having a parade there, and this is how they chose to <laughs> exhibit themselves, is by riding around on bicycles completely in the nude. And for some reason, that's legal over there. There was a parade in New York, and they were marching through the streets saying, We're here, we're queer, we're coming for your children. Right now, California is currently trying to pass a law through the state legislature, which codifies that if you don't accept the transgender identity of your child, that can be considered child abuse. They said you might lose rights to your child if you don't accept that, if that that law goes through. It also says foster parents will have to accept the transgender identity of any kids they bring in or they can't be foster parents. So, uh, and and even one California legislator, a Republican senator, his name is Scott Wilk, he even said he's going to leave the state as soon as his term is up. And he's encouraging other conservative families in California to start migrating out of there. He says, it, it, he, this is a quote from him. He said, if you love your children, you need to flee California. You need to flee. That is a direct quote from him. So, you know, I mean, this, this kind of stuffs just got me thinking, when is the right time to to leave somewhere? Um, it sounds kind of like those angels that back in Sodom and Gomorrah's day when they came down in its last day. They said, you know, get out, don't look back. And, um, and that's what I'd say probably to some of these places, even in the United States. I've been wondering this question myself lately. What is a good Christian to do if you live in a state that does stuff like this thankfully i live i live in missouri i'm kind of almost right in the middle of the country so i have this is not um i'm kind of away from some of the craziness like the the people on on tricycles up there in seattle riding around naked i'm away from some of that craziness that hasn't come to missouri yet but it's like man i gotta i'm starting to wonder these things i'm not saying i have the answers to this why don't you chime in if you got a if you got something um to say on that uh I don't have all the answers. I, I think the answer is going to depend on your personal situation. Um, so I'm not going to just give broad answers of what a Christian is supposed to do. But I do think it's a question you need to ask. This is something you need to, to pray about. I'm not telling you it's a sin to live in California. It's not a sin to live in a big city. But I just I just encourage anyone out there, if you live in a big city or something, you know, just make sure you are aware of what's going on around you, whether it's practical or wise. To keep staying there. Not gonna tell you it's right or wrong, not saying it's sinful or not, not judging you whatsoever. I honestly am not. I'm just telling you, these are the questions I'm working through in my mind. I'd be asking myself, is this a good idea? If you look at what happened in big cities in 2020 with the Black Lives Matter riots, um, or more recently, look at what happened with that those two guys, Jordan Neely and Daniel Penny, just this year. You know, it's it's like when I look at that, I'd say, how bad do they do things need to get before you consider moving somewhere safer. And so I'm not going to tell you what's right or wrong for you. Not going to judge you. Not not whatsoever. I honestly I honestly won't. I mean that. But I just think these are the questions Christians need to ask themselves. This is what the so-called righteous people in Jerusalem should have been doing here in these last years before Babylon came. They would should have been asking themselves, why am I even still here? Okay, there came a day in Ezekiel's lifetime that God finally brought the hammer down. Technically, uh, it was a sword, but he finally brought it down on Jerusalem. He said, I'm bringing it down on the righteous and the wicked. And if that sounds unfair to the righteous, I just ask them, well, why were you still in Jerusalem by this point? I mean, the holy temple is full of idols. God told Ezekiel, you know, at the start of this chapter, he says, speak to the sanctuaries, speak to the holy places, prophesy against the holy places. They are defiled by pagan worship. There's been warnings of God's judgment coming for years by the prophets. So why haven't you moved somewhere that that hasn't lost its mind? And so I just I just put those questions out there. I'm just putting all those questions out there. If you got a comment, um, send it in. Crossreferencespodcast at gmail.com. I'm honestly not trying to be mean or judgmental about it. I'm just kind of thinking through these questions on my own. And I I'd, I'd really like to hear what you think about it. If you're a fellow Christian... Um what's your perspective on that do do you think it's time for christians to get out of big cities or states like california and then and maybe as a follow up um what if this what if we go to a state that's that's supposedly more sta- more sane uh, but then th- these bad policies these bad laws what if they come to to a state near you <laughs> i mean the, the, the this is what are we what do we do then these are the questions i think we really got to be thinking about um cuz there could be dark days ahead if Jesus leaves us here much longer. Okay, back back into Ezekiel 21. Let's look at verse 6. But you son of man, groan, groan bitterly with a broken heart right before their eyes. And when they ask you, why are you groaning? Then say, because of the news that is coming. Every heart will melt, and every hand will become weak. Every spirit will be discouraged, and all knees will run with urine. Yes, it is coming, and it will happen. This is the declaration of the Lord God. As you study the prophets, you kind of get to know the personalities of the prophets a little bit. Uh if you think about Jeremiah, everyone knows he was known as the weeping prophet prophet. He got emotional sometimes. He got emotional a lot. I don't I don't think God ever had to tell Jeremiah to weep. He he was just a tender-hearted guy. You know, this is just, that was his personality. As we've gotten to know Ezekiel right from the get-go, he's he's less emotional except for being angry, but he's not as emotional um he was an angry guy. He argued with God. He argued about his calling. He said to send someone else. He got he, he threw a little bit of a fit about it when God called him to be, to be a prophet. He was upset with God about that. He backtalked. Ezekiel doesn't seem like the most tender-hearted, soft-hearted, sympathetic type of individuals. And so, anyway, I look at places like verses verses six and seven. I feel like God is saying, "Hey, show some emotion, Ezekiel." Okay cry about it, show some grief. The people don't just care about what you're saying, they're also paying attention to how you say it. And I think that could be a good lesson for us, you know, as we witness to people. As I've heard it said, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Um, God says, listen, Ezekiel, the people's hearts will melt when they see your sincerity. Their knees are going to weaken. They'll take you seriously. And so, you know, show some emotion as you talk about this. This is why people listen to Greta Thunberg, even though she's a small child, even though according to her mother, she is mentally ill. And even though her predictions are constantly wrong, people listen to her because she's very dramatic, emotional. She has an innocent looking face. All those things make her very persuasive. I mean, she's like the most famous climate activist in the world. She's the only one whose name I could even tell you. I don't even know any others. And she gets on Time Magazine because she puts on a good show. She reads the scripts that people hand to her. She yells at the world leaders. It's dramatic. People like to watch it. She's emotional. She's persuasive. For some people, Greta Thunberg said it. They believe it. That settles it. But Time will tell. She's a false prophet. Time always gives that away. Time has the final say. Her predictions don't come true. That's what reveals somebody as a false prophet. But this is the same thing that's true for Ezekiel. Time is on his side because what he says is going to happen, it actually is going to happen pretty soon in Jerusalem. And he even sings a little song about it right here. (laughs) Not kidding. He sings a little song about it here in this chapter. So starting at verse 8, we get into something called the song of the sword. And this is one reason I like the CSB version of this because it actually presents it as more of a song. That's what it's supposed to be. And so it says, The word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, prophesy. This is what the Lord says. You are to proclaim, A sword, a sword is sharpened and also polished. It is sharpened for slaughter, polished to flash like lightning. Should we rejoice? Th- this part it gets a little bit obscure in the Hebrew. So you look at different translations, they're going to say very different things, but it says, The scepter of my son, the sword, despises every tree. We'll talk about that more in a minute. The sword is given to be polished, to be grasped in the hand. It is sharpened and it is polished, to be put in the hand of the slayer. Ezekiel is singing a song about this sword that is coming. It's going to be actually not just a sword, it's going to be a lot of swords. They're going to be swords in the hands of the Babylonians. This is a little clearer for the people to understand than the fire that Ezekiel was talking about at the end of chapter 20. Nebuchadnezzar is going to come through With his armies, that is what the sword of the slayer refers to. The sword is drawn, the sword is polished, the sword is coming. There's a section of Hebrew here that is kind of hard for many people to interpret. Verse 10, it talks about the scepter of my son. And it's got people wondering, is that some kind of messianic prophecy? It seems really out of place if it is. I do think it's a reference to Genesis 49. That's when God gives a prophecy to Judah. And this was, a, this was a Messianic prophecy. It talks about how the tribe of Judah is going to be the tribe that leads Israel. Genesis 49.10, it said, the scepter will not depart from Judah or the staff from between its feet until he whose right it is comes and the obedience of the peoples belongs to him. So it's saying Judah's not going to lose the scepter. And that's talking about a right to rule. It says Judah won't lose it until the Messiah comes. And I'm going to talk more about that next time. Uh, it, it's, it actually gets a little bit more clear what Ezekiel's talking about here if we when we get into the next part. So, and by the way, make sure you come back for the next lesson. I am really, really excited to talk about the second half of this chapter. It's got some really, really good stuff in it. So make sure you come back next time for that. Um, but anyway, as for verse 10 this time, I think that what, the, what I'm gathering is the scepter refers to the leadership of Israel, which is Judah. And it's saying that nobody is going to be safe from Nebuchadnezzar's sword, not even the leaders of uh, not even the leaders of Israel. Nobody is escaping. Um if you know King Zedekiah's story, you know that he should have listened to this. Go back and listen to the lesson on chapter 12 if you if you didn't listen to that before. But um so God is telling Ezekiel to show some emotion, okay? <laughs> and so we'll pick it up here at verse 12. He says, "Cry out and wail, son of man, for it is against my people" It is against all the princes of Israel. They are given over to the sword with my people. Therefore, strike your thigh in grief. Surely it will be a trial. And what if the sword despises even the scepter? The scepter will not continue. This is the declaration of the Lord God. So he says, nobody will escape the sword of Nebuchadnezzar because it's not just Babylon's power that's coming against Israel. It is God himself. Verse 14. So you, son of man, prophesy and clap your hands together. Let the sword strike two times, even three. It is a sword for massacre, a sword for great massacre. It surrounds them. Ezekiel is told that the sword will strike three times, two times, even three. And Babylon attacked Israel three times. And actually, two of them have already passed in the first attack. That's when Nebuchadnezzar kidnapped just a small handful of Jews. That included Daniel and also his three friends, um, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah. They got all their names changed when they got to Babylon, but Daniel and his three friends, they were taken in the first attack. Nebuchadnezzar came again a few years later. He took 10,000 more Jews. That included Ezekiel. He's writing these prophecies from another city where he was taken after that attack. But one more attack is still coming, and this one is going to be a siege against Jerusalem itself. And so that's why the sword is coming down three times. A sword for a great massacre. It says it surrounds them. Verses 15 through 17. I have appointed a sword for slaughter at all their gates, so that their hearts may melt and many may stumble. Yes, it is ready to flash like lightning. It is drawn for slaughter. Slash to the right, turn to the left, wherever your blade is directed. I also will clap my hands together and I will satisfy my wrath. I, the Lord, have spoken. Now that's not the end of the song, but that's where we're going to stop for today. The sword is slashing everywhere. Slashing left, slashing right, slashing king, slashing peasant. Wherever Nebuchadnezzar wants, it's going to slash because it's actually God's sword. And God is no respecter of persons. When God's judgment comes against the land, you can't hide somewhere and, and escape it. You can't fight back against it. You can't pass a law that bans it. You can't vaccinate against it. You can't bribe God out of it. You can't do anything. All you can do is get on your knees and plead for mercy. I used to have this shirt, it said, kneel or no deal. And it refers to that verse where it says, every knee will bow. It's gonna happen, it's either down here or it'll happen up there. And that is the end of our Ezekiel study for today. I'm gonna do a mailbag segment And uh, then we'll just we'll wrap it up for today after that. So if you were just here for the Ezekiel study, then, hey, you're good to go. Make sure you come back next time. Or, um, hey, if you listen, I'm going back to once a week now. Uh, Now that we're in the month of July, I'm just going to slow my pace back down a bit and only do one episode per week. Um, What you could go check out is Daniel Moore's podcast. It's called Connecting the Gap. I did get a wonderful opportunity to visit with my friend Daniel Moore. He was on my podcast once in the past, or a couple times, I guess. Um, but w- we did a we did a series of episodes talking about young people and some of the issues that they are facing nowadays. And so that first episode of that is already out on his podcast. It's called Connecting the Gap. Make sure you go and check that out. And hey, just check it out, period. I mean, even if you don't listen to me on there, but you'll find lots of great Bible studies all through that podcast. It's been around for a couple of years. He's got over 100 different episodes of all kinds of different topics of Bible study, a lot of them very similar to mine. So if you like my show, I'm sure you'd find a lot of things you'd love to hear on his as well. Connecting the Gap, wherever you get this podcast, I'm sure you can find Connecting the Gap as well. And uh, but the latest episode, it's an interview with me, and um, we are we're talking about some of my experiences as as a youth pastor, and and we talk about how the world has changed so much over the past few years. And so it was a really fun conversation. Go and check that out, and then I'll be on his show again um, in an episode coming out this week that comes out on Thursday. So we had a mailbag response to episode 80, and that was an episode I, episode I did called What to Do if a Transgender Person Visits Your Church. And so we got this feedback. It's, it's anonymous, but this is, this is in reference to the fact that um, one, of the, one of the suggestions that I gave uh, is having a unisex, or what is often called a family restroom, or you might call it a handicap restroom— and I suggested that if a transgender person is uncomfortable with the bathroom that uh, corresponds to their biological sex, um, maybe having a single stall, single person bathroom, that that could be a solution for your church. And that's where you should send people if you have this situation where a biological man is trying to use the women's restroom and saying that he identifies as a woman. And so I gave that suggestion as an option. Um, so we got some feedback on that and. Uh, He or she says, I'm trying to be open-minded, and maybe I'm wrong here. I welcome other points of view. I just feel like a special washroom is encouraging sin. Would we make special provisions for obese people, or drunks, or fornicators, or thieves? After all, these are all impulses. Do we not tell them to turn from sin, and not use preferred pronouns, etc.? Welcome them for sure, but they have to use the washroom according to what God made them. God doesn't make mistakes. And so anyway, so I... I think that's a fair question, the fair fair thing to ask, and so I want to take a moment to respond to that. And um, first of all, I th- I probably would make accommodations for somebody struggling with obesity, but I'm I don't want to get away from your point. Like I do see your point. You're asking if making special accommodations to allow someone who is transgender to use a unisex bathroom. If we're doing that, are we just capitulating to the spirit of the age? I think that's basically what you're asking. And so here here's the way I'm looking at this. And it's the, it's, if you have a guest at your church and if this guest happens to be a transgender person and if they are curious about God, okay, if there's an opportunity to share the gospel with them and move them toward a relationship with Jesus Christ, then I would just say, I don't I don't need to force the bathroom issue right from the start. Like say, hey, you're a man, you need to go in the men's room. Um, I'm not saying I would let a man use the woman's room. Okay, I will force that issue. I think that would make it the ladies of my church that would make them uncomfortable so i wouldn't do that but i don't see it as a sin to use a unisex bathroom like i don't feel that i'm more morally compromising by asking someone to use that and also i feel like it's a short term solution um this is to let them be able to use the bathroom at your church while they are thinking about is jesus the son of god you know that's the question they need to be thinking about when they come to church and so if they keep coming on a long-term basis, if they want to dedicate themselves to God, if they want to become a Christian, then, you know, that's going to involve learning to live and learning to dress as their biological sex, and it's going to mean using the proper bathroom, and all that stuff is going to come with sanctification and discipleship. So um, the the idea of the unisex bathroom, which are useful in lots of ways, not just for the a transgender possibility, but I mean lots of uh families, you know, people potty training their kids, um people with handicaps. I mean, there's there's or people who just want a little extra privacy for whatever reason. There's lots of good reasons to have a single person bathroom at your church. So um anyway, I was just trying to share some advice. That was kind of my thought process on that. Uh, the unisex idea was just a that was a way to help someone deal with using a restroom until they get to the point of being comfortable with the way that God made them. I agree God doesn't make mistakes. And so that idea would deal with it in a way that doesn't make anybody feel uncomfortable. But again, I would just say that was just my, a suggestion on my part, okay? If you don't agree, that is totally okay. <laughs> I was just trying to share some advice that I hoped was was helpful. And if you have a better way, by all means, I mean, go for it. Do, do what you think is best. Um, one of my goals with that lesson was that I just want to get people thinking about these things. Um, Christians, pastors, churches, They need to have some kind of plan, some kind of policy for how they are going to deal with these issues, and they need to do it before a transgender person walks into your church. Because if you don't have a policy like this in place beforehand, well, then not everybody's on the same page. Um, Some people are saying one thing. Some people might be saying another. Some people are making decisions on the fly. Some people are put on the spot. And so it's just, it's better to have all this thought out ahead of time. And so whatever you decide to do, I would just say what at your church, um, whatever you decide to do, decide ahead of time. Don't make your church people figure it out right there on the spot. You need to have a plan in place. Have a policy. Have a meeting about it. Communicate with each other about it. And and my hope is that whatever it is that your church just has some kind of plan. Okay? I hope you I hope you've got people at your church thinking about this. If you're not the decision maker at your church, share that episode with somebody who is the decision maker and get them thinking about these things. And um, if anyone else has a comment or a question, and by the way, if you hear a my neighbor, I think is started weeding a few minutes ago. So if you hear that coming through, I apologize about that. But that's what that sound is. So um, if anybody has a comment or a question about that topic, about anything else at all, you can leave a comment or send an email to crossreferencespodcast at gmail.com. Next time on the show, make sure you come back. I'm really, really excited about that episode. We're going to do an episode about making godly decisions. And we're going to look at how people made decisions. Uh, We'll look at how they did it in the Old Testament. You might be surprised at some of the decision making processes that God even endorsed in the Old Testament. God led the people in some unique ways back then, but He has a new way that He leads us in the New Testament. And we are going to be studying that next time. So come back next week, assuming that we're all still here next week. Okay, I haven't checked with what Greta Thunberg has to say about it. (laughs) But hey, come on back next week. And for this time, thanks for listening to the Cross References Podcast. This has been Luke Taylor reminding you, people don't just care about what you're saying. They're also paying attention to how you say it.